Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show... A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. They are the enemy of the people. Donald Trump and the publisher of The New York Times are in a row over the president's threats against journalism. My guests Florence Biederman and Ivor Gaber will be discussing this and the day's other st top stories, including French President Emmanuel Macron's popularity is reported to have fallen to a new low, and yesterday's election result in Cambodia, where the ruling party won 100% of the seats in Parliament, which has both the US and EU considering sanctions and visa restrictions. Plus, why it matters where politicians head for their summer holidays. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Daniel Bache. So welcome to Midori House. My guest today, Ivor Gaber and Florence Biederman. Welcome both to the program. We begin in the U.S., where Donald Trump is in a war of words with a longtime foe, the New York Times. Trump and the publisher of The Times, A.G. Salzberger, have clashed over the president's threats against journalism. Mr. Salzberger said the president had misrepresented a private meeting, which The Times was originally told to keep off the record. Ivor, perhaps we'll start with you. This is a familiar pattern for Trump, correct? Originally, he uh, says the meeting was very good and interesting, but then sees something he doesn't like and goes on a tirade on Twitter. It's, it must be very difficult working for Mr. Trump because, you know, as a, as a briefer, as a press officer, you go out and you're told, yeah, this was really positive. And you go out not, not just to see stuff we see on the record, but off the record, you're guiding the journalists. This is really moving forward fast. And then whilst the very moment you're doing that, the president is tweeting the complete reverse. Um, I'm sure it's a very good negotiating tactic to completely destabilise your opponent. They never know if you're coming or going, mm. is he friend or foe. Whether it's a good way to run the country is another issue, and in particular, and uh, something that we can come on to discuss, I do think it's very dangerous territory, this undermining the press, undermining the media. Because without a free press, you don't have democracy. And I think it's almost becoming a real issue for America. Florence, what did you make of this meeting and the sort of new publisher? Well, he's the son of an, another publisher of The New York Times, but he's new in this job. He's been there since January, he gets invited to this meeting at the White House and, and said he was very serious and stern with Mr. Trump and, and left there with the idea that they had a little bit of an understanding. Should he have expected anything or was this always what was going to happen? Well, if he's a journalist and if he uh, observed the president for this uh, during this year, he, he knows uh, what to expect, I mean, which is not much. Mm. And, uh, Nobody thinks it's because uh, Mr. Trump meets uh, a journalist that he will change his mind on the press. And uh, I agree that the terms he's using are completely unacceptable, like enemy of the people. I mean, it's the kind of vocabulary you have in... Uh, uh, autocratic countries. Mm. I mean, for, for the least, it was even compared to Stalin, you know, like because to brand journalists as enemy of the people has been done in the past in, in tragic um, occasions. So what it reminds me is rather like regime like uh, the Turkish regime, Erdogan mm. pretending uh, the journalists that are in jail are terrorists, you know. So it's the same kind of, you know, designating kind of a, 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 a victim for, for, for the public outrage. I mean, which... Uh, the public is, is clever enough in America not to fall completely for it. Of course, Trump's follower will probably follow. Uh, but still, I mean, it creates an atmosphere that has nothing to do with, with what you expect in a democracy. The, that was demonstrated very frighteningly in a documentary that's just been run in the UK 
in which the New York Times allowed the cameras in to follow a year of reporting Trump. And there was a, literally a frightening scene with Trump at a rally, um, not for the elections earlier this year, where he the camera is filming from the perspective of the journalists who are at the back of the hall. And Trump is literally encouraging people to turn around and start harassing and haranguing and threatening these journalists who, the end of the sequence, is as soon as Trump finishes speaking and they have to be there to report it, they literally grab their laptops and run. And that was that is such a frightening image in a democracy that journalists are running away from a crowd that has been wound up to commit violence against them. Interesting point in the, in the New York Times coverage of this, a story I was reading this morning, where Mr. Trump was seemingly surprised when it was suggested to him that the New York Times didn't already have security guards outside of their offices. He just assumed they would. Um, shouldn't they really be concerned about their safety because of this? Well, um there is that tragedy. I mean, it, well, it is relating in Annapolis a couple of weeks ago. A, a somebody who had an argument who didn't who didn't like something the newspaper had done went on went in and, and killed five journalists. Now I, mm. I'm not relating that directly to Trump, but I'm relating that to an atmosphere in which violence against journalists or at least extreme hatred and contempt towards journalists seems to be encouraged from the very top. But security for journalists, I can see why the New York Times now thinks it's necessary. I wonder if it's also concerning Trump reimagining the term fake news in itself. I always thought fake news was the spam propaganda stuff we saw on Facebook, viral stories that gained momentum but were often then thought to be lies. Fake news to Trump is anything he doesn't like. Is that right? Yeah, fake news is as soon as he's criticized, yeah. uh, it, it tends to become fake news. And he that's that's how he uses the term. Uh, also, like for any kind of information related to his uh, supposed uh, relation with Russia during the campaign, e everything is fake news uh, apart from what he says. I mean, he's the only source of truth, which again uh, reminds of some other kinds of regime. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Erdogan in Turkey earlier. An interesting point that uh, Mr. Salzberger made was that Trump actually boasted to him about coining the term fake news. And the New York Times publisher said countries with dictatorships were not banning fake news, but rather independent scrutiny of their actions. Is this a concern to independent reporting uh, even beyond Turkey, other places? Yeah, in, in, in many other places, unfortunately, probably in Cambodia mm. or, or in, in many other places. Yeah. But I think journalism, tr real journalism, is under threat in many parts of the world. Even in the UK, um, we won't revisit the arguments about Brexit and how that was covered. But I do think we're seeing across the developed world things we took for granted like free and fair media, free media, fair elections. Um, now no longer things that we can necessarily take for granted. I do think um, Trump epitomizes a rather serious trend, as you say, not just in Turkey, mm. the rise of the AFD in Germany, um, the, five star, the, 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 the Italian government and so on and so forth. We are in worrying times. You see that as damaging to the actual credibility of journalists, what, what these dictators and what these leaders say. I think... Not No, I don't think it's damaging the credibility of journalism. That's what they attempt to do. It's right. undermining democracy. Right. Um, I think as long as journalists hold firm, that's, uh, I'm, I was about to say mainstream journalism. I'm not going to say that because that, can, that is also used as a term of contempt, the mainstream right. media. But as long as journalists with integrity keep doing what they should be doing, I don't think, I, I think they will maintain their credibility, but I think their role in a democratic society um, becomes more and more problematic.
And some countries understood it, like France and the UK. The governments are thinking of a way to, to fight against fake news, like mm. this kind of campaign that is also supported by governments, by other kind of governments than Trump's government. Well, yeah, they recently had a report in this country looking at fake news and um, it really comes up with some very interesting proposals, but at the heart of them is trying to get the the big um, digital companies, the Googles and the Facebooks, to accept the fact that they might not be publishers, but they're not just platforms. But that's a debate for another time, but mm. that's at the heart of this issue now. The big um, Silicon Valley monsters, or however you want it, giants, they're at the, the, the heart of this issue. And until they can see that they have a responsibility, it's going to be very difficult to solve. Uh, Mr. Trump, interestingly, uh, as he always does, has his little pet names for, for his foes, like the, the Amazon Washington Post, he called it, and, and the failing New York Times, he likes to say. But in reality, they're have been turning a profit. They've added thousands of subscribers, and the stock has risen, risen steadily in recent years. Uh, Trump calls himself a businessman. Why does he carry on with this lie, do you think, that they're, they're a failing newspaper? Yes, he even mentioned, I think, the dying mm. <laughs> newspaper. Uh, well, that's a way of attacking them, of mm. presenting them as outdating, old-fashioned, uh, inefficient. Uh, that's, that's part of... Uh, of, uh, of his narrative uh, on, on their inefficiency and uh, on their inutility, maybe. Part of the, just the age we live in, perhaps, and Ivor, where, where you can skirt the media and go direct to your supporters and they believe the, the, believe the party line, is that not right? Well, it, that comes back to the issue of echo chambers, that it's now possible to for people of opposing political views to live in very different media environments where they're only seeing what they want to see, so mm. that reinforces. Um, at the heart of this is the notion that politics is more about the gut than the brain. In other words, that feelings trump, to use a bad, make a bad pun, feelings trump intellect. Mm. And that if you can get people... I, I, I wrote a, a recent chapter talking about how effective it was to generate contempt for your opponent, which Trump did very well, um, because... Contempt means you don't just disagree with them, but you think they are morally culpable. And if a politician gets labelled as contempt, it's very difficult for them, uh, successfully labelled with contempt, it's very difficult for them to escape that. It's not like a debate about policy. It's a debate about my qualities as an individual. Mm. And Trump did that initially with his opponents in the Republican primaries, but he did it very successfully with Hillary Clinton, lying Hillary Clinton. Right. Uh, great analysis here. I want to move us on to France, though, where President Emmanuel Macron's popularity has fallen to a new low on the back of a scandal surrounding his former senior bodyguard, who was in question when he was caught on camera assaulting a May Day protester while off-duty and wearing police gear. A survey of nearly 2,000 people published in the French weekly newspaper Journal de Dimanche uh, found Macron's popularity had slipped to 39%. In July, that's just one poll, but uh, Florence, how bad is the situation facing Macron just now? Yes, as you said, it's, it's not a very big slip, like, yeah. uh, and still he's uh, around 40% popularity. Another poll gives him a little bit up. So let's say uh, it seems the, so far, and there may be other polls later on, that the, the public has not been as outraged mm. by the whole story as, uh, as uh, the politicians and the opposition. And for them, it was, okay, this is a serious affair, but it's not a state affair. You mm. know, it has nothing to do, like, for example, Nicolas Sarkozy being suspected of having received money from uh, Muammar Gaddafi. That is a state affair. Th 
this is not this level. I mean, this is a mistake, obviously, and there was a very clumsy and late reaction of uh, Macron's entourage and maybe of himself, like he, he didn't react very, very quickly. So this is something bad, but the way it was used by the opposition was uh, uh, really a bit extreme, like with investigation committees at the parliament, hours and hours of interrogation of uh, uh, the Home Affairs Minister, of other uh, politicians close to Macron. Well, and you, you, you can understand why, because this young president who was so successful, who comes out a bit out of nowhere and become... Uh, one of the youngest and most successful presidents mm. so far, has been so arrogant in the way he, he presented himself as a uh, member of a new world, uh, of new politics, which means, uh, in a way, he humiliated the rest of the political class by telling them, you're, you're outdating, you're old-fashioned, you, you, mm. your way of thinking is old and you are not efficient. So the fact that he promoted himself on this platform, like new thinking, new politics, uh, uh, finished with the left and right, and that uh, one of his aides is acting in such a traditional way, like thinking he's so powerful, he can mm. do whatever he likes, was really an opportunity for them to, to take revenge and to take him, look, I mean, are you this brand new guy? But still, uh, what, what you are doing, what your entourage is doing is so passé. Uh, Ivor, have you seen the scandal uh, around the, the bodyguard uh, pr proving damaging for Macron in the way he's handled it? Or well, well I, I, I defer to, to Florence's expertise with French politics, um, and it's right that 39 40%, particularly compared to the sort of ratings his predecessor was getting, is not mm. dramatic. Uh, I think there could be real long-term damage being done here. I was talking uh, previously about the damage that contempt does. Um, if Macron is perceived as, as um, Florence mentioned, as arrogant, I think that's a very damaging um, perception for politicians, difficult to shake off, um, particularly where this mood that we have in the UK and that you saw in France with the, the relative success of the Front National um, of the metropolitan elite um, and the ordinary people mm. against the elite. And I think Macron managed to transcend that very cleverly when he got elected. He wasn't seen as the elite, although he clearly was. But I think this arrogance and this behaviour could well be um, long-term damaging for him. Um, of course, we're a long, long way from him having to face another presidential election. But um, I, 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 I'd be interested to see, because I've been an admirer of his strategic skills, the way he... As, as France that came from nowhere, mm -hmm. formed his own party one. I'd be interested to watch if he sees it as a problem and how he address and if he does, how he addresses that. Because I think at the moment, if he lets it fester, then fester it will and it will be a long term damage for him. Florence, you've mentioned uh, the way that this is this has been handled by Macron. Can we see this as as a sign of him losing a bit of momentum or is this a bit overblown, do you think, at this point? Uh, well, I, I, I still agree with Ivor, even mm. if he differs, in the sense that, as I said, he's perceived as arrogant, right. not only because of the Benalla uh, affair, but for, uh, for the way he's behaving generally. There were other stories before, like he's planning to build a swimming pool. He has been sending lots of money to have new plates at the Elysee Castle. So, yes, <laughs> definitely there, there is this... A chiasm between him and the population that pre-exists to, to the story right. and the story doesn't improve it of course uh, 
So, yes, he's also seen as the president of the rich because his tax policy right. has been more favorable uh, to the businessman uh, because he wants to create a new environment. So th- there are many reasons for him to, to be a uh, bit décalé. And, uh, yes, th- this, is, this is an issue for him, certainly. Although, actually, as we were discussing before we went on air, um, arrogance is quite close to audacity. Mm. And audacity for politicians to be seen as audacious is a plus. You know, prepared to take risks, a big, you know, you could say de Gaulle was an audacious politician, Churchill was an audacious politician, which is very good. But if that slips into arrogance, there is a problem. I think in retrospect, we can see that both those two giants, de Gaulle and Churchill, were arrogant. But whilst they were active in politics, I don't think that was, they were perceived as audacious rather than arrogant. And I think that's the trick that Macron has to pull off somehow. Interesting, perhaps a, a fine line, but perhaps a leader like him, a young guy coming from his own party, as we've said, um, needed a bit of that to, to get where he is. Uh, right now, though, what do you think he needs to sort of uh, reset the reset the tone? Oh, this is my job application to be spin doctor. <laughs> uh, my knowledge of spin doctoring in France is based only on a brilliant television series that ran in this country a few years ago, the the name escapes me, where I was a great admirer of them. What does he need? I think he needs, I mean, I think he needs to play it long. I think he needs to recognise that there's a problem with this image of his. Right. Um, But um, the only reason I'm being hesitant is anybody in our situation these days who, who makes a prediction about anything to do with politics don't know what they're talking about because we're in such a world of flux that, you know, I hesitate to be... I'm very confident about predictions about the past, but that have less mm. interest to audiences but than predictions still, there is a problem future. that has been identified is that uh, his policy is much more... much closer to the policy of traditional right. Mm. Yeah. And there is, and many of his aides, a knowledge that he should be more social-minded. He should present some socially-minded measures that would improve a bit his image. But he's still trying to take on the unions, isn't he, in terms of reforming the labour laws, or is he backing off He's discussing off with them now. I mean, so, no, just uh, that's the weak point, but uh, the problem has been identified, as you said, and this is one of the solutions that some of his aides are, are thinking of, so... Watch this space. Yeah. We, we mentioned the, the labor reforms there, but uh, Macron, the, the great reformer, how he came in and how he campaigned and uh, reshaped the economy. Where is he on that and how does that move forward? Well, uh, he has moved forward on uh, the liberal law, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is moving forward. On, he was moving forward on a reform of the constitution. He wants to decrease the number of MPs. But that was what was discussed at Parliament uh, mm-hmm. just when the Benalla affair uh, exploded, so it has been slowed. But he has been so far doing uh, more or less what he said he would do. So, as we said, yes, uh, arrogance, you, you have to believe in yourself and in, in the fact that your ideas are right to promote them, which was probably what uh, his predecessor, Francois Hollande, definitely lacked. Right. Watch the space, as Ivor says. I guess we shall revisit this. Uh, you are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bage, Florence Biederman, and Ivor Gaber. Coming up next, we look at the very suspect election in Cambodia and ask whether anyone should care where politicians choose to go on holiday. Summer is finally here, and so is Monocle's bumper July-August double issue. This is when we zero in on quality of life and cities, why we love them, what makes them actually work, and how they need to improve. As always, we reveal our ranking of the top 25 cities to live in worldwide. Find out if your city makes the cut. 
And for the first time, we present our manifesto for creating a more relaxed city, a guide to breathing in and lightening up, and a celebration of everything from taking your kit off to making a bit of a racket. In the affairs pages, we meet the urban heroes giving back to their hometowns, while in design, we take a closer look at greenery in the city and how to do it right. Elsewhere, we take a dip in Geneva's top swimming spot, we tuck into some northern Spanish grub, and we sit down for a mass with the locals in a few Bavarian beer gardens. Prost! That's all in the July-August issue of Monocle on newsstands everywhere now. Or head to monocle.com to become a subscriber. So welcome back. You are listening to Midori House with me, Daniel Bage, Ivor Gaber, and Florence Biederman. We turn our attention now to Cambodia, where the Prime Minister Hun Sen has tightened his grip on power, extending his rule for another five years in yesterday's election that has been widely dismissed as a sham. The CPP, the Cambodian People's Party, says it won all 125 seats in Parliament with over three-quarters of the vote. Both the U.S. and the EU have called the elections flawed and announced they are considering actions following the election results. Uh, Ivor, is uh, what is the most suspicious aspect of this election, first of all? Well, uh, actually, it's a, mix, it's a mixed bag because on the one hand, they won 125 seats, which does raise an eyebrow or two. But normally when a dictator is having an election, the turnout is usually like 99%. So I think somebody's head will roll that there's only a turnout of 77.5%, which suspicious which suggests that the opposition, the main opposition party's call for a boycott mm. was relatively successful. Well, interesting. Uh, the Asia Times reported that uh, about 600,000 uh, ballots were spoiled, uh, which is a bit of an increase from before, I guess, a, a tactic they've used. Before. Yeah, I mean, I, I hate to offer advice to the uh, to Prime Minister Sen about how to make his ballot fixing more efficient. <laughs> But I do think this is something he needs to look at. Turnout should not be 77.5% when you're seeking to to run a corrupt poll. Um, you know, the tradition is 99. So, I mean, I'm, I'm being slightly cynical here. I do think that um, there's a real problem in, in Cambodia, uh, apart from the fact that it's a very tragic country which needs all the support it can get, um, that uh, it's validating its um, election using what most of the international community see as phony election observation missions, um, mm. which uh, raises issues about fake news, actually, and devalues the currency of election observation if this trend continues. I wonder uh, sometimes about the if there is a complete misunderstanding of democracy in Southeast Asia. Sometimes when we look at Myanmar and the Philippines and others, these are countries uh, that sort of play at democracy, but they continue to pretend. Why is that, Florence, do you think? Uh, uh, they would say it's in their culture, I guess. Mm. This is usually the argument that is used. Uh, I, I think the point also is that uh, the election was gaining some momentum in, mm. in Cambodia. And in uh, the last uh, um, region, local election, like they won something like more than 40% of the vote. So I think this time, and that was uh, last year, so Unsen was really afraid like mm. he would lose his grip. That's why I think he organized this uh, kind of, yeah, of ridiculous election without any opposition, uh, with the, the website of opponents being closed. I mean, so wh wh why make an election? Yeah, it was purely formal, but I think he really felt there was a challenge there. Very swift reaction, but he didn't seem to be hiding uh, the way they went about this uh, election. Were you surprised by the reaction? 
Well, no, I mean, uh, w- what's at stake is, yes, as you say, democracy in a small country in the middle of Asia, uh, it still has the support of China. Yeah. Uh, so I think also this this plays a role in, in the decision that he, he doesn't even want to, to pretend uh, he's uh, running a country democratically. And even if the US mm. and the EU are protesting or maybe uh, cancelling some aids, I mean, it may not be that crucial to him as long as China is, uh, yeah, China was even helping, mm. gave money to buy the book. I mean, China, you know, as a helper in an election. I well, mean, it's you right. can imagine the kind of <laughs> result it gets. Well, it, it, it raises a smile, but it's a serious smile. That literally, what would Chinese election observers know about free right. and fair elections? It reminds me of an alleged conversation between a British politician and a Soviet politician in the days of, and the Soviet politician said, um, we don't understand why you, you have elections when you're unable to guarantee the result. Um, <laughs> and China being an election observer is a bit like, oh, I can think of all sorts of analogies, but, you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. They do not have a tradition. And, and actually, when you talk to Chinese politicians and journalists, as I, I do, they accept that they're not a democracy. They run mm. a different sort of society. So why they should, the Cambodians would think that it would be useful to have that imprimatur, because the reason they have election observers is because if the international community believes this, this is a, nat- a real or a potential democracy, then aid flows, rec- membership of international yeah. organizations flow, all sorts of things, other things flow from it. But putting China in as one of your observers is unlikely to get you aid from anywhere else other than China, which of course might be the, po- the point of doing it. Uh, very interesting indeed. Uh, just finally today, uh, it is that time of year again. Politicians have broken up for the end of term and they're all heading off on summer holidays. For example, if you're interested, British Prime Minister Theresa May has reportedly headed to Italy for one of her week-long walking holidays. But uh, do politicians, does their choice of holiday destination matter? And is it any of our business? Uh, should we read into a leader's choice of destination, first of all? Florence? Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it matters because it's part of the image they are projecting mm. of what they are doing. Uh, I cannot imagine Theresa May going on a lavish holiday in uh, in Bermuda or whatever. Mm. I mean, what is expected of her is to show her serious and safe and stable and uh, and strong and uh, she, what she is. I mean, it's just a projection of yourself. So mm. it's really part of the image of a politician. And yes, it is very important. Sometimes there's there's perhaps either more behind the story, though, is there not? Uh, I'm thinking, um, for example, the Canadian Prime Minister was found to be in a breach of ethics rules after he and his family traveled to the private Caribbean island of the Aga Khan. So maybe we should be paying attention. Well, I do think that France is right. It is part of the image. Mm. Um, there's very strong images in my mind or memory of Mrs. Thatcher only holidaying in England right. because Mrs. Thatcher didn't think of much of Europe and pictures of her on the beach, windswept Cornish beaches are very strong. Harold Wilson, who was an early prime minister, did the same thing right. of being seen to holiday on, on the Scilly Isles. Um, it's very interesting that as soon as David Cameron ceased to be the British prime minister, um, he was photographed on virtually every sophisticated resort around the world. <laughs> he was making up for lost time. Yeah. All those he couldn't visit while he was yeah. prime minister. Yeah. Where would you... 
where would you send the leader of your own country on holiday, uh, Florence? I've got a, a few suggestions here from Politico last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, they suggest Theresa May anywhere but Wales because at last time she went there, she came back and had a disaster of an election. Uh, Vladimir Putin, perhaps Mar-a-Lago, where he could uh, get along and take a shirt off and sun himself with uh, with uh, Mr. Putin. And for Mr. Macron, they suggest the Palace of Versailles because then he could see himself reflected in the Hall of Mirrors, 357 of him, which could be maybe a good thing. What do you yeah, think? Where would you I send mean, him? Uh, I think as a spin doctor, I was suggesting this. Uh, no, what he's doing actually is to go in a in a very very beautiful place on the Mediterranean. Mm. But now the issue is he wants to construct to build a pool in this. So even the fact that he wants to add a pool was kind of a mini scandal. So definitely, no, he couldn't go to Versailles. <laughs> There is a genuine problem that politicians can't, leading politicians can't be seen to be having exotic holidays. Um, and therefore they're very yeah. frustrated. They're supposed to love their country and Absolutely. to stick to it and to, to meet their countrymen. And uh, What do you suggest briefly uh, other than an Italian walking tour for uh, Theresa May? Well, of, of course, um, she did take some pretty d- a disastrous decision about Brexit on a previous walking holiday. So I mm. hope that she will... Um, not go walking. She once said the most. She said one... she would. She said she would. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, maybe though. Maybe though. For Mrs. May, she gave an interview where she was asked if she'd ever done anything bad, and she said she once ran through a wheat field. And I'm hoping that she might do that again, where she will have another moment on the road to Damascus where she realises what a terrible mistake she's making with Brexit. And as she runs through the wheat field, she screams, yes, yes, I'm going to try and rescue Britain from this terrible mess I've got her into. But that's another subject. Well, a a good note to end on there. Perhaps uh, Mr. Macron and Mrs. May need some uh, nice summer reflection time. A lot on their plates. Uh, That does bring us to the end of today's show. Florence Biederman, Ivor Gaber, thank you so much for joining us again here at Midori House. Today's show produced by Marcus Hippie, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Pierre-Antoine Denis, our studio manager, Christy Evans. Midori House back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 in London. I'm Daniel Bates. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye.